So we, we never wanted to be those guys in the industry that would yell and scream and berate somebody and attack them personally because something went wrong in a kitchen where you're human, things go wrong, right? So I think that that's where a lot of this is going to change. A lot of um, the industry is going to change for the better where people are just going to be treated the way they should be treated, paid a little bit better to, um, you know, sustain the way restaurants should be run like every other business. Um, people should get paid for overtime. People shouldn't have to work two hours over their scheduled shift just because it's busy and not get paid. Um, a lot of these different practices happen and I think they're going to stop happening because people have left the restaurant industry in droves because now they can work over Zoom and, you know, do another type of, of job and make, you know, a couple bucks more an hour, if not more, and not have to deal with an environment where, you know, it's fairly abusive sometimes in, in certain certain places. That, and that's, a, that's a good to hear because you want to see, you know, industries always evolving and not staying in the traditions of the old too much and having that sort of yeah, ambition to, to continuously improve themselves. Um, and sort of, uh, we've sort of seen, like, you talk about how the rest of the industry is like transformed away from that sort of go to Ramsey type angle. But what's like the biggest challenge today that restaurants face in this sort of post pandemic era, trying to get people to come back in their seat, maybe even shifting away from that delivery model? How are they tackling it and sort of how should they be tackling it? Um, it's a two part question. So I think the first part, what is the biggest, um, what is the biggest issue that restaurants face right now? I would say, uh, would be one of two things would be staffing and the supply chain problem that's going on right now um, i know that a lot of smaller restaurants that aren't chains um, that are you know mom and pops have one or two stores are having a lot of problem getting some of the most basic ingredients because of the supply chain shortage that's happening with you know the trucking and things like that um, that's a big one um, i would say how do they tackle it um, would be, you know, look at your menus and try and figure out what you can get, what's local, um, you know, things that, you know, it, it's very hard in, in, in the world now where everything is, you know, globalized, where we're getting everything from all over the world and menus are very diverse. It's a great thing, but when you have a supply chain shortage and things aren't crossing the border or, or coming in through the ports, you have to look internally and look local. So I think that restaurants would do themselves a, a favor, and I can see a lot of them doing that now, is let's look at what we can get locally and put that on our menu. Um, because you know it's there. You know that you can get it with one or two days notice. Um, right now, I know a lot of you know my friends who are chefs, they're looking at it going, um, I put things on the menu and I don't know if I'm going to get it or not. And I hope it does. And if it doesn't, I'll just 86 it. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's that's 86 kind of, it meaning. Uh, uh, sorry, 86 means like uh, taking it off for the day. Like it's not on the menu. You can say, uh, you know, uh, if, if you run out of fries or something, okay, fries are 86. It's a very kitchen slang thing. Yeah, I definitely get that. And so there's something about like, how do you ensure that, you know, <clears throat> the, that the ingredients come in at the correct times? And how can you make sure that the stuff that's sort of outside of your kitchen is sort of process in a way that it can be, you know, managed and monitored in a way, in a very simple and sort of 
lack of headache kind of thing. Yes, 100%. And so how is that going to evolve, do you think, over the next, you know, three, four, five years? Uh, I think the evolution will be that you're going to see a lot more um, on a on a macro level of things in terms of the world. I think you're going to see a lot more deglobalization. You're going to see countries, cities, provinces, whatever it may be, states doing things more local. Um, the supply chain thing has caused a lot of problems, and it's because we rely on a handful of places to do the majority of things that we need as as consumers. Um, I think that's going to change drastically, and that's a good thing. Um, you're going to see uh, restaurants, you're going to see owners, I think, change their menus to be more local. Um, in the three to five year stage, I think we don't get over this supply chain thing for probably two years. So in three years, we might be seeing a resurgence of different items because it's going to take that long to get everything in check um, from a level of back to normality to where we kind of were before all of these things happened. But in the five-year plan, I think you're going to see a lot more um, diverse menu items, but a lot more diverse businesses within our communities and businesses in terms of restaurants, but also the purveyors, suppliers, um, and creators of these ingredients are going to become local instead of ordering from Spain or ordering from Japan or right. ordering from China or ordering, right? It's going to all come locally. And there's something to be said about like how that generates a community and stuff, you know, but as you start deglobalizing, you're really putting more value in your neighbors and having, you know, uh, the people around you contributing to your overall success. And so if you can have like, you know, you, if, if you can be, you know, friends with your with your farmers and be friends with your suppliers and friends with everyone who's in that, in that chain, Honestly, it makes it yeah. a lot more fun, but it also makes it a lot sort of easier to make things happen more quickly. Exactly. And I think that one of the big things, too, is that Canada as a country, we have such a vast landmass and we have so many resources. We could be that country that could solve a lot of these problems, whether it be fertilizer or wheat or oil or whatever. Canada has all the resources. We can do things. And we're not a large population base so because we have a smaller population base we have to be net exporters we have to be sellers of our goods we have to export because if we produce to our capacity there's no way 37 million people can consume that yeah so we have right we have the ability to do that so i think that's one of the big things is getting governments on board and and getting politicians on board to say let's ramp up production but become net exporters and not worry about importing so much stuff when we can produce an export. Sounds like you got to, you know, pivot into the ag tech industry. Yeah. Yeah. We're, I would say, you know, we're looking huge at ag tech uh, from the inverted venture side of things, because, you know, with my background of seeing the great things that we do in Canada, the issues that restaurants are, are uh, having uh, issues that the world, just people in general, like there's enough food on earth to feed everybody on earth. So why is there people in countries dying and little kids starving? I think that ag tech uh, ways to fix how we produce food and deal with food waste and have clean water technologies that can solve so many problems. And when people are fed, 
people are energized and people can do great things. Um, if you're only, if you're hungry, you're, you're really just focused on how do I get that next meal and you're tired and you're weak. Um, if we can get the world fed, this entire planet will be such a better place. And so obviously you've seen like a lot of great strides there. Like you've seen in the last 15 years, we've had to get more people out of the poverty line than in any other time frame in history. So like you see that the only place where people are actually, you know, that malnourished where they can't find food is where there's some sort of a dictatorship or some sort of a political control being put upon them that doesn't allow to get access. But outside of those, you know, rare cases, it's, it's been an incredibly like, you know, um, fulfilling thing to see that you, the entire human population has access to food and water. And it's always been improving, you know, to be more more clean and more, sustainable but how can we think about yeah. taking our sort of micro experience of a restaurant and sort of extrapolating that across um you know our country and different countries and see how we can uh, really create that sense of um nourishment you know globally yes i and that's the one thing that we look at when we're investing into egg tech companies is you know how are they able to do that how are we able to things obviously are better right how, how do we make them? I'm sorry. Again, this dog is, okay. I'm going to put her downstairs. Sorry. We'll just keep it running because then we can do a little bit easier editing. Sorry about that. Okay, let's. Yeah, so no, we, we, run, we, run the, we run the thread about you know how we're creating this sort of global uh, nourishing society and these sorts of things. Yeah, so how do we how do we globally nourish societies? Um, I think the big thing is looking at what countries need the help and what countries are um, not overproducing, but overproducing for the needs of their citizens. And I think us in the West, whether it be Canada, the US, Europe, and I know in Europe, they're making great strides on trying to minimize food waste. Um, we have, you know, in North America now, the ugly vegetable movement is kind of coming to fruition, which is great. You know, in the grocery stores, everything has to be perfect. Well, mother nature doesn't grow everything perfect. So I think that, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes back into the compost that's perfectly good to eat. It just doesn't look as nice. Yeah. Um, that Why doesn't that stuff go to people that need it? And I think that our mentality is changing now that humans are looking at things a lot better um, and not looking at things, uh, you know, aesthetically anymore, which is great. Um, and I think that we need to change the broader thought process on the consumer to say, yeah, this carrot might have some things growing out of it, but it's still a carrot. It's nourishing. I can still eat it. It doesn't have to be perfectly straight and a, a perfect size and all these different things. So I think that's the way we can feed the world is if we change our perception of what good food is, um, that is going to help because then we can feed other people with our excess. And that's kind of where I think the future goes. And, and it might not be, you know, we're, I, I know you're a young person, I'm, you know, almost four, almost 40 now, but I, I hope in my lifetime, we can see technologies happen where waste from Vancouver ends up in Manila, Philippines, mm. or ends up in, you know, um, Indonesia, wherever it may be, where people need food, 
it could be there overnight. Yeah. That's kind of my, my dream is that, you know, things that we necessarily would throw away here, rusty lettuce or, you know, a carrot that has a black spot, whatever it may be, would go over there and they would use it. They would be more than happy to just trim off the ends and use it. Whereas I would have to send back 24 heads of romaine lettuce because a couple of the heads had a little bit of rust on mm. That was just kind of the mandate. So you could think one restaurant or one university would do that. What do the rest of the world, the other hundreds of thousands of restaurants have to do? So that is the way I think we change fundamentally how people eat around the world. And there's sort of an aspect there about like, you want to make sure that you can still use the materials you have, but also not uh, sort of over purchase and over uh, supply things that aren't going to be used. Like there's a whole issue around food waste that's not just related to, you know, um, ugly vegetables, but it's also like just, you know, one third of the food that we, you know, produce is just, you know, thrown away anyway. So how can you, as a restaurant, know what's, um, wh what to buy and how do you allocate that based on your sort of different fluctuations in your, in your customer activity on the, based on the weekday, based on the, you know, the holiday, whatever it is, but looking at that from sort of a more, almost data-driven perspective and how do you take that and generalize it across, you know, all restaurants, all sort of communities? Um, that's a very good question is, you know, every restaurant does things differently because every person is different. Every owner is different. Um, I think, again, like I was saying, the successful restaurants, they, they have it down to an art mm -hmm. form of how to order, right? It's a matter of, you know, okay, we know that on this weekend last year, you're always backtracking, looking at last year's sales or the year prior sales and kind of saying, okay, this week there's this event going on around town. We could see an influx of people. Let's order this much food. It's, it, it is a science because you are, you are running your margins. Every strawberry you throw out or every head of lettuce that you lose 50% because you ordered too much and it's sitting in your fridge for a week longer than it should. Um, is money going down the drain? So it's a very, in a way, hard question to answer because everyone does it differently. But um, I could say from personal experience, we use data from prior years as to what we thought was. And you just look at what's going on in your area at the time. Um, also, you know, if I, I ran lots of um, banquet operations and convention centers and, uh, you know, things like that. So when you have a banquet, it's far more finite. You know exactly to the ounce per person of how much lettuce you're giving. Um, you know, how many tomatoes you need per salad, then, you know, how many steaks you need and how many ounces of potatoes. So you can figure it out. And there should, in a perfect world, be very minimal amounts of waste or leftovers. Yeah. Um, so that's a good way of doing it. If you're, if you're running um, a catering operation easier, when you're running, running a restaurant, it's a lot harder because you don't know. Sometimes you'll be swamped and busy and you weren't expecting it and you need food or else you're going to, um, you know, tick off your guests and they might not come back. Or sometimes you think you're going to be busy and it's not. And then you're left over, you have all this leftover yeah. food. So what do you do with it? And that's, that's the juggling act of a restaurant that um, I think a lot of restaurateurs get off on. It's, it's a rush of trying to figure out all these different things. Um, but I think there's something to be said about that's, like, that's pretty uh, a future where, you know, 
the banquet idea has this, um, you know, pre-planned nature to it. Everyone, you know exactly who's coming, what are they going to be having? But there's definitely a sort of movement, I think, I've seen about, you know, you can see who your customers are. If you have a loyal customer, you know what they're going to order ahead of time. If you know, if you know when they're going to come in, you can, you know, scope out that, that meal and get those items delivered in the correct sort of time frame. But can, it's really hard to do that across, you know, your entire customer base. And so starting yeah. to move towards a way where you can look at it from a data perspective, look at it from, you know, what does the community want and have those, um, you know, let's say your, you know, your, your chicken wings ordered days in advance because you know this guy's coming in on, on a Thursday and he, he's going to order the same thing every time. That's something that I think it just could be something, you know, interesting to look at in the future and how do we, you know, analyze a little bit less um, pre pre-planned trends and just sort of look at it from a more probabilistic perspective almost. Yeah. And I think that, you know, looking at it from a prob probabilistic aspect is kind of the way restaurants do it now, but they're trying to really get more finite on it on, you know, how, how many guests do we have? What is the most likely, like, what is the thing they're most likely going to order? Um, I think one of the main ways to keep your inventory levels down and your um, ordering in check where you necessarily won't have a lot of waste is in your menu creation. When you create a menu, and I've always done this personally, um, is, you know, make sure your menu isn't huge. You know, I, I, I don't know if you guys have like uh, like a cheesecake cafe oh, yeah, in, factory, in Vancouver yeah. or anything. Not in Vancouver, but I was trying to see yeah. and the huge menu is unbelievable. Huge menu. The menu is uh, an encyclopedia, right? And it's how do you how do you make a hundred items great? You can't, right? You make thirty items great or twenty items great. Um, you can only make a hundred items good, maybe, <laughs> right? So I think keep your menu small um, and have your greatest hits on there. But the other thing is make sure you're cross utilizing different items from menus. I've done a lot of consulting in my time for, for different restaurants here in Calgary and in the States when I worked for Marriott. And one of the biggest mistakes I see restaurant owners make and chefs make is, you know, they'll have one item on one menu item and nowhere else throughout the menu. So if that item doesn't sell, you have this box. You can't just buy you know, one guava or one papaya. You have to buy a case of eight. You have to buy a case of 12. Um, if you have items cross-utilized in one or two, three, four different places on the menu, but used in a way that it doesn't look repetitive to the guest, to the customer, that's the way you can use up all of your extra goods. So if you had a slower weekend than you thought, well, in the following week, you would be able to use whatever you have because you're cross-utilizing it much faster than if it was just on a one menu item type thing. Yeah, definitely. There's definitely something to be said about how do you, you know, if, if, if it was possible to use the same 10 ingredients for 20 items, like that'd be the, the perfect menu in some way. Because, you, you know, you don't have to even worry about who's coming in, but there's always going to be that sort of variability. But I think even you talked about how, you know, ordering local probably helps fix that because there's such a, you know, if, if one farm creates, you know, uh, wheat, they probably also create, you know, some sort of a, a grain that, that'll help you with that meal. So you can start looking at different sources and say, what ingredient clusters do they, do they provide? And how can I take those clusters and put them together in a way that uh, messes with my, with my menu? Yeah. Yes. And, th and that's, 
a huge part of it, a huge part of it. And I think you're right though. That's what um, people need to learn in a way. It's, it's something that's learned over time, especially if you're new to the restaurant industry. It's something that's learned over time. Yeah, definitely. I think we're running out of time. Uh, but before we do wrap up, is there any question that you'd wish that I'd ask you and how would you answer it? Um, no, I think that you asked me kind of everything. We, we talked about the whole um, industry yeah. in a way. Um, yeah, there's there's nothing. I think I think, we'll I think to, we're, we'll get to, we're trying to solve the world's problems. <laughs> we'll get to crypto next time. Yeah, we can get to crypto next time. That's for sure. Awesome. Yeah. Well, how about you tell the listeners where they can find you online? All right. Uh, so you can find me on LinkedIn uh, under my name, uh, Craig DeCruz. Um, you can find me on um, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, Twitter, my uh, um, handle is at WWEChef. Mm. Um, and yeah, I'm a, I'm a big wrestling <laughs> fan. Maybe that's something you could have asked me about. Um, something nerdy <laughs> to talk about. Um, uh, other than that, yeah, Facebook under my name, but, uh, LinkedIn is probably the best place. To awesome. Be. Craig. Thanks so much for your time. All right. Thanks so much. Cheers. Take care.